Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we are talking about choosing to walk in the Spirit. And there's very deliberate wording there. A lot of times we talk about, well, how to walk in the Spirit and what does it mean to walk in the Spirit. And I think that um, as we go through this, you'll see that practically it really comes down to choosing to walk in the Spirit. So let's begin. Uh, i got two passages here to begin with that I want to read. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where we read, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew 6, 24. And then also Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, where we read, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And I also wanted to read, there's this idea of the two ways um, that is very common to uh, Jewish understanding and certain rabbinical writings, uh, Qumran texts and things such as that, and then also in the Didache, uh, which is, it means, uh, it's Greek for the teaching, which was a document from the first century that was kind of circulated around. It's not perfect in some of the things that it says, um, but it was circulated around kind of as like a primer for basic doctrine, basic practical Christian life when you first became a Christian after coming out of paganism in the first century. And so here's a quote, and this is actually how it starts. Um, this is in the Didache, where it says, two ways there are one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. Now, the way of life is this. First, love the God who made you. Secondly, your neighbor as yourself. The way of death is this. First of all, it is wicked and altogether accursed. It is the way of persecutors of the good, haters of the truth, lovers of falsehood, of men ignorant of the reward for right living, not devoted to what is good or to just judgment, intent upon not what is good, but what is evil. See that no man leads you astray from this way of the teaching, since any other teaching makes you away or takes you away from God. That's the Didache. Now that's not scripture, keep in mind, but it's a good historical witness to how first some first century Christians understood the practical Christian life. And so, kind of in getting started this, we have to kind of go back to the beginning. Ever since man was created. He has been both flesh and spirit. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, we read, this is uh, whenever the days of Noah, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And that's the context of not saying your age, but you have 120 years to get right before I execute judgment. It's kind of the context of that one. And so in Genesis 2.7, you see where man has a spirit. God breathed into his nostrils, a brother life breathed, uh, being the same idea of spirit. And Genesis 6.3, which says that he is also flesh. So since the fall, that is whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, man is born spiritually dead. He lost that spiritual life. His sins have, you know, separated him from God in that sense. And from the time that he is born, he only knows how to be led by his flesh. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 
we read, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so this is the situation with mankind. He is born fleshly, being led by the lust of his flesh, and he needs to be freed from the bondage to this quote-unquote master so that he may be free to serve his rightful master. All right? God is our rightful master. He's our Lord. He's the one who's created all things. He has a right to us, but we are serving this other master and we're, which we're in bondage to. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, we read, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Um, and this is where we start to discuss the law of Moses. Why was the law given and for what purpose, right? And Paul makes very clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 12, we read, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting or lust if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So our evil inclinations, our, our, the principle of sin in us, our flesh, they're aroused when we are made aware of God's commandments. In this context, the law. Romans 7 is not describing a Christian. It's describing somebody before they become a Christian. Otherwise, why in the world would a Christian be desiring to keep the law of Moses? That has nothing to do with it. He's describing what it's like when you're lost and you're in bondage to sin. And the purpose of the law was to show us this conundrum. You know, it's to reveal our sinful state. All it could do is make you aware of that you can't keep it, Right? And he goes on in Romans 7, verse 13 to 14, he says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And so, the law was given to expose sin. The law was given to show you your sin. It cannot actually do anything to make you righteous. Why? All it can do is just show that you are in bondage to sin. It's almost like if you're in a dark room and you clean it up as best you can, and then you go over and you pull back the curtains or raise the blinds, light floods the room, and it shows all the stuff that you missed, right? The light did not... Exp the light did not create the dust or the whatever dirtiness is in there. It just exposed it. That's what God did. He increased the light of our understanding by showing us righteous standards, right? And truly the law of Moses, if you could keep it, you could save yourself, but you can't. 
right? If you could keep the law and save yourself, then you would never have need to offer a sacrifice for sin, right? Because you would never have sinned. And so, but how do we skate, escape this state of, of sin? How do we escape this state of bondage? Where in and of ourselves, we cannot do righteousness. And we certainly can't do anything to save ourselves. Well, and this is where a principle you have to be introduced to in order to begin to understand this, Right? Uh, we read a couple passages, Romans chapter 6, verses 2 through 7. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I mean, the whole point of Romans 6 and 8 is to show you that you are actually supposed to be not living in sin. And so when people take Romans 7 to try to say, well, see, no, you can live in sin. That's what the whole point is, right? It's just, well, you esteem the right things and you keep trying, but you never actually do. That is completely false. Romans 6 and 8 preach very, very clearly victory over sin. Not just an imputed victory, but actual victory over sin. And Romans 7 is to set that in contrast to what you are without God living in your life, without the Spirit of God in your life. And so his point here where he begins in Romans chapter 6, um, you know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. Um, he goes on to say, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. And I want you to zoom in on that. The whole point of you being united with Christ in the likeness of his death, that's denial of self, right? The whole point of it, is that your body of sin might be done away with, that bondage to the, the lust of your flesh. And it says that you should not any longer be a slave to sin. And it says, for he who has died is freed from sin. And whenever you see a verse like that, and it says, these people are freed from sin, then if you actually care about sin in your life, you should zoom in on that, memorize it, and seek to understand it, so that you also might be one who is freed from sin. Not just its penalty, like some people try to say, but actually from the power of sin in your life. He said in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 4 through 6, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, that is the law, its commandments, and its condemnation, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we would serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And so we are born under the bondage of our master, sin, and we must be made free from this. And so in order to be made free, we must die 
to our old master. We must die to sin. And Paul uses the illustration of marriage in the first couple verses of Romans chapter 7, where if you're married to somebody, right, and you die, you're obviously not still reckoned to be married to that person. Or if they die, you're obviously, death separates that bondage. And so how do we die to break this bondage is the illustration that he brings out. He says, well, we do this by turning from that master, repenting, and committing ourselves to our new master. And in that is this denial of self, right? The old man, the old way that you used to live, the old self, the person you are before you came to Christ, and all the things and ways that they thought and did and lived, it must be done away with. It must be put away. It must die. And so you turn from that old way of living and commit yourself to a new master, Christ. And we trust in what Jesus has done, and his death becomes our death, right? We're then born again by the Spirit of God, and the bondage to our old master, sin, is broken. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, we read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice that phrase again, set you free. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit right? You can be set free from the law of sin and death. God has done everything necessary to break this bondage in you. And the whole point of it, whole point of Christ's coming was to do away with, uh, to destroy the works of the devil. The work, Every kind of evil work should be destroyed, right? And so the requirement of the law should be fulfilled in us. What is that? Actual righteousness, not just the righteousness where Christ you know, he covers us and our old sins are forgiven, but also so that we should be able to walk according to the Spirit and not sin any longer. That's the whole point. And so one thing that you have to understand, there is no overlap between flesh and spirit, between your evil inclinations of self and the righteous leading of the Spirit. The, the two are at odds with one another. This is why if someone is following the one, he cannot please the other. Um, and this is ultimately what Christ was getting at. You're going to have to choose which one to please and which one to despise. Right? There's two ways. It's like if I'm walking left, I am not at the same time capable of walking right. The very act of me choosing to go left means I am choosing to not go right, and vice versa. In order to choose to walk in the Spirit, you have to choose to deny the flesh. There's no way around it. And some people, they try to keep the door cracked just a little bit, or they want to try to ride the fence. What well, says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways? You're going to fail, right? It's got to be you've got to make up your mind to deny the flesh, deny yourself, and walk after the Spirit. This is kind of the point, right? And notice what he says, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8, where he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit 
the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this is because there's no overlap between flesh and spirit. When someone refuses to displease their flesh, it is impossible for them to please God. Remember, what did Christ say? He says, you know, if any, any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right? The whole point is denial of self. It's, it is not po- it's not possible. Um, it's not impossible because God's just not going to accept it for some reason. It's impossible because it's completely contrary to God's ways, right? It's just, it's opposite. It is, it's, it's not just arbitrary choice by God to be like, well, I'm not going to accept this and I'm going to accept that. No, it is because it is contradiction. It cannot be overlapped, right? Um, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, we see this principle of them being opposed to one another, the flesh and the spirit. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, right? If you want to be away from condemnation, right, you have to walk in the Spirit. But notice what it says there, so that you may not do the things that you please. Your flesh is always going to want to sin. But there should be a higher desire working in you to not walk that way. You're wanting to please God, and you have to kill the one. It says we should mortify the deeds of the body through the Spirit, right? And that very act of mortifying the deeds of the body through the Spirit is because when the Spirit of God is in you, that is what is working in you, that desire. If you don't have a desire to put away sin, if you don't have a desire to stop sinning, I'm sorry, you are not converted in the slightest. You have an intellectual repentance, an intellectual conviction that these things are wrong and I ought to put them away even though I don't want to. I'm sorry, if you have been converted, you may be struggling to learn how to walk in these things because the practical teaching on these things is absent in a lot of churches and a lot of groups. But you have that desire working in you and you are striving to know how to have these things. You're constantly repenting. You're constantly seeking the face of God and in His Word to put away sin. If that's not in you, you need to seek the face of God to get that desire. So what is the key to victory? And I'm sorry, if you can hear, there's a huge rainstorm going on outside my office right now. And so you can probably hear a low hum in the background sometimes, and that's the rain and wind and things like that. So if, that, if you hear something in the background, that's actually what it is. But what is the key to victory? Well, in Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 11 through 14, we read, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Notice all of that language of permission. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you 
obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of, un- of unrighteousness. It is a choice. For those who have actually turned to Christ, that bondage has been broken, and you need to choose which one you're going to serve, right? Uh, and he goes on in verse 16 through 18, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that through you, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." It is by us choosing to yield to Christ and to his word, that denial of self and embracing of Christ as Lord, not just of our eternity, but of our present, and to his words that and will that we are made free from the bondage of sin. We are choosing to cling to the one master, Jesus, and to despise the other, flesh and sin. The sin hates this, and we must accept it, and let the flesh rage. But the goal is not to appease the flesh. It's not. You have you can't appease the flesh. It's never satisfied. It's like a fire. The more you throw on it, it's never going to go out. That's how you go from a foothold to a stronghold. And we need to have this attitude where, look, no, I'm choosing complete victory from this. And so our goal is not to make our flesh comfortable or satisfied. Our goal is to please Christ. And so the key to being delivered from bondage is to give up on pleasing yourself. And you have to become enamored with Christ. You have to. There is no way around it. It's like you are a drowning man in the ocean in a storm, and somebody tossed you a life preserver. Right? And if you just hold on to it, they're going to pull you into the boat. Right? You have to cling to Christ with that same kind of tenacity. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 21 to 22. And think about this. Uh, If you're struggling with sin, just think about this. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. You have to treat sin as what it is. It's dangerous. It's deadly. You can't trifle with it. You can't dance along the line. You can't stay near the line and look over and try to have a mental you know, pleasure from just thinking about it for a few seconds. You can't. Even the gray areas you need to back away from. You need to treat it as what it is. It's serious. Now, I do want to take a side note. There's a discussion that comes up sometimes whenever I'm talking to some people. And the issue, and even just in the recent couple months, a young man was talking to me. And and I've heard it more than once from, from different people. It's like they get in bondage and they struggle with putting away sin. And the issue of free will comes up. And it's so strange to me that this comes up in direct directly tied to this. And they're like, well, if God knows all things, God's the reason that I'm not having victory. I mean, even some Calvinists will take it so far as to say that the sin in their life, oh, this is just a a besetting sin, you know, it's just, just the messenger of Satan to buffet me. And they blame God for the sin that's in their life when God has told them to put it away. 
that God's foreknowledge, that he knows all things from the beginning, does not mean that he causes all things to happen. That is false. That is a philosophical idea that does not have any place in the scriptures. Does he cause some things? Yes, because he's sovereign. But it does not necessitate for him to cause all things, for him to know all things, right? Because knowledge is not influence. It's not. And this is this comes down to, if you listen to um, lesson we did on God's foreknowledge uh, a couple of weeks ago, you'll see uh, just a specific focus on that. But man has free will to choose what he does. He does. It's genuine choice. It's not just apparent choice. It's true contingency, not just apparent contingency, right? And this is directly implied and presupposed by Christ's word about how you cannot serve two masters or the broad road and the narrow road at the same time. He gives you choice. He acts like you have choice. Therefore, you have choice. And so the Christian life is not necessarily like a cause and effect relationship where God first causes and the effect is worked out in your life passively. Now, are there some things in existence and in the world that God does that? Absolutely. But not when it comes to your relationship with Him. It is closer to God's influence and our response. And then God enables us to do as a result of our response to Him. And we'll come back to that reason in a few moments. But to influence this idea of why God's foreknowledge does not mean that He causes all things, and this does come up. And people's discussion, because when you're struggling, the flesh and all these things are going to come in to try and somehow convince you that it, you don't have to overcome sin. And it will come at you from 10 different ways, and you, or sometimes it'll come in the back door and you'll, you'll be kind of deceived into it without even realizing it. You have free will. You have to choose to overcome sin. Yes, through the means that God has given to you, through God's enabling, absolutely. But you actually have a conscious, intentional responsibility in this. God is not going to force you. He's not going to force you to put away sin, except whenever you die and you have to be judged for it. Now, real quick, to illustrate how God's foreknowledge does not mean that he causes all things to happen. Okay, I am holding a book, right? The Linguistic Key to the Greek New Testament, Volume 1. Um, and I'm going to drop it in just a few seconds, okay? That is going to happen. It is necessary. It's going to happen. Philosophically necessary, right? One, two, three. Okay, I dropped the book. You knew it was going to happen. You had foreknowledge that it was going to happen. Did you cause it? No, you did not. This is just a basic illustration to show you foreknowledge, that you know something is going to happen before it does. Even in our limited capacity, does not mean that you caused it to happen, okay? So do not ever let somebody try to take away your responsibility and accountability to God by saying you don't have free will, okay? You do have free will. It's a limited free will in the sense that we are not free like God's free? Absolutely, we are not God. But God has given to us a sense of a governed free will. He wants us to choose to serve Him. And that is ultimately at the heart of this discussion and why people resist the idea of choice. They want to resist any actual sense of accountability and responsibility to God. They do. I have heard it myself from people when you talk to them. They don't actually want to have to make the choice. They want God to make it for them. They want God to change their mind for them. 
They call out and say, Lord, deliver me from this, but they don't actually want to be delivered from it. They want God to change their desires so that they don't have to actually choose to do the other thing instead of that. I'm sorry, it's just true. So here then, as we move on, is the practical aspect of what we need to take away from this. Let's read that passage again from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, the Greek word underlying um, the phrase, set their minds, is phreneo, uh, with the, the basic meaning uh, in this context to, to give careful consideration to something. And in the next verse, Paul reinforces, uh, references the mindset on this or that. And now, when it's saying mindset, uh, pay attention in the way in which it's rendered, because it's not talking about like how we mean today when we say, well, he has a mindset. No, it's talking about, it's saying the mind set on this or that, okay? It's like the mind, noun, set on verb, okay? It's not saying a mindset. And though you could make an application with one or two other passages, we'll read in just a second for that. But it's talking about an action being done, okay? So in the next verse, Paul references the mind set on this or that. And the underlying word for this is phrenema. Um basically uh, meaning the faculty of fixing one's mind on something. And this is the same word used at verse 27, um, describing the mind of the Spirit, right? There is an action to be done by us in setting our minds on the right things. And here are some other uses of the word for now in the New Testament. So try and give you a, a sense of how this word is used in this manner, okay? Uh, Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And this is whenever the Lord's talking to Peter. And Peter doesn't get the idea of Christ dying for the sins of the world. They probably He probably has the same idea of, well, he's you know the Messiah is coming to take over and deal with Israel's enemies, you know, kind of a very zealot um, type idea where the Jews thought that he was coming as a conqueror king the first time instead of the second time, you know. And so because Peter's mind is not set on God's interest, that is sin, righteousness, judgment to come in that sense, but on temporal kingdoms and things such as that, his mindset was not right. His He was not setting his mind on those things, and so he didn't understand, right? Uh, Galatians 5.10 uh, this is Paul writing to the, uh, some of the churches in the region of Galatia. It says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Um, the Greek word underlying adopt there is our word for now, right? And so um, he has confidence in them that they will set their minds, that they will intentionally put certain things in the foreview of their minds um, in this manner and in not in another manner, right? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. Therefore, 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, the word intent, for intent on one purpose there, is the word for now, right? And they were to be intent on these things. They were to be setting their minds on those things together, right, as a body. Um, next chapter in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. He says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So all these, I mean, you think about this, all these things where they were enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, they were being led by the desires of their flesh, right? They glory in what should be their shame. It's because their minds were set on earthly things. And then also Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And notice how he ties that in there at the end of uh, verse, uh, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's something I want you to think about. Does that describe you? Have you died, and your life is completely wrapped up with Christ? And I remember when I first came to Christ, yeah, I, I wandered around for a couple months, but it was just Going to church and being with brethren, even though I disagree with doctrinally with, with the home church that I went to, I was sincerely converted, and it just became my life to be with God's people, to be in the Word of God. I saw it as my life, my responsibility, my role, that He should be the first thing in my life in every way, shape, and form. I was, my mind was set on those things, and so I grew. You know, the Lord purged me quickly um, and everything, and it's just as He dealt with you about certain things in your life, you put them away. Why? Because your mind was set on the right things. He enabled you to put them away. I mean, I've been in situations where my affection was growing in a certain thing that was not right, and uh, especially younger in the Lord especially, and I went to the Lord and I prayed about it, and whenever I sought Him about it, His mind about it, He answered and He took away completely my desire for that thing, and I was able to turn on a dime from that. And that is may not always be the case. Sometimes it is a slow purging where the Lord is dealing with you at a deep level about things, your motives, your dreams, your ambitions, and all sorts of things, but you can be delivered from everything. That's the point of your salvation, to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, which leads into the, the, the point that I want to ask at the end. Why is it this way? The question that can come to us sometimes when, when this becomes difficult, or when we don't feel, quote-unquote, holy or spiritual, the question that can come up is, why has God done it this way? Why has He chosen to do it this way? Why do we 
have to first set our minds on the things of God before we can be delivered from the bondage of sin? Why does he want our free will choice without coercion on his part? Now, influence, conviction, yes. Not coercion, not forcing. And the reason is very simple. Because God is making us like his son. We are, to be, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We as beholding in a glass the same image of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, right? He freely chose to do the Father's will instead of pleasing himself, right? And this is very clear in Scripture. Uh, let's take, for instance, Matthew 26, 37 through 44. Uh, this is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, and he says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. God is forming in us the same attitude or mindset where we freely choose to do his will in the face of pressure, anxiety, fear, opposition, temptation. Options, right? Options other than doing his will. And he's working in us to where we choose his will every time. This is over coming, right? If you have actually set your faith on Christ, this is nothing more than an extension of that to your practical life, right? Here's something telling you, it's like, hey, live this way. Hey, choose to do this thing. And it really should be coming from the place of your faith in Christ. No, he's my Lord. I can't do that. Why? Because he's my Lord. You are choosing to actively live by faith in Christ, right? I mean, it says in 1 John, it says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. It's not some decision you made at an altar one time of faith. It's no, you're living by faith. Um, I guess we'll end on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude, freneo, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, like holding on to his glory, right? He intentionally set it aside for the time, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God wants us to be obedient children and not just moist robots. And the fact of the matter is, in order to have true victory, you need to change your intentions and your desires. Instead of asking God to constantly deliver you from things that you are, you're kind of hoping he doesn't, you have to be the one to shut these things out.
Yes, it's all through God's enabling power. But because your faith in Christ is the springboard of all of it, God is the one doing these things. It says he works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so those things that you want victory over, you have to choose to put away. You have to choose to change how you are approaching it. You have to choose to shut these things out. And throughout all of it, you're relying on Christ. You're crying out to the Lord, right? You are setting your mind on different things. You are intentionally doing things different. You're choosing to yield to God. He says it's wrong. You need no other reason. Okay? That is what you really need. Choose to walk in the Spirit of God. Complete humbleness to God. Everything is the Lord's. There is no area where He doesn't have the right to tell you what to do. And you joyfully give it to Him. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.